Hello and welcome to the Quantum Wire, news and information from the frontiers of the quantum information science revolution. We're coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership of the University of Maryland and National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm Kurt Suplee. And I'm Steve Ralston. And today we'll be talking about the use of lasers in quantum information science with our guest, Trey Porto, a JQI fellow and a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I see by the old calendar on the wall that it is the 50th anniversary of the invention of the laser. That's obviously a big deal to anybody who uses um, CDs or DVDs or checks out their groceries at the grocery store or uh, uses any kind of fiber optic communication. But it's, a, uh, it's an even bigger deal to people in quantum information science, yes? Uh, almost all or a large part of quantum information science, we interrogate our quantum bits using laser light. It's a nice source of coherent, well-controllable light, which gives us the ability to manipulate things with a high degree of precision. How do you talk to them with lasers? So I think that the, the, the main way we use lasers to talk to these quantum bits uh, that whether they're atoms or quantum dots or ions, uh, there's two main things we use them for. One, um, for controlling the atoms, and the second one is for detecting them. And uh, the control can be uh, the external degree of freedom, like where it is, whether we trap them or hold them. Uh, and the control could also be on the internal degree of freedom, which is the spin, which flips which state it's in. How do you adjust the spin with uh, a ray of laser light? Well, the uh, an atom typically has discrete energy levels. That's what quantum mechanics is all about. So the electron can be in specific different states, and the laser light basically excites the atom from one state to another. And quite often what we do using laser light is we start in, with the atom in the so-called ground state, the lowest energy level of the electron, with, say, spin up. And then we shine some laser light on, the atom absorbs a photon going to an excited state, and then it emits a photon, and when it comes back down, it comes to a state with, say, spin down. If, if done carefully, it's a completely controllable way to manipulate the spin of an atom. When you go to adjust a laser, how do you pick the laser to create exactly that energy jump? Lasers have a, a very precise frequency or color, which is the, 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 the tone that you're talking about for making it precise. And you need some reference to determine that you're close to the, the atoms that you want. So for example, if I'm using a rubidium atom for my quantum bit, it has a certain transition, I need to make sure my laser's tuned to make that particular transition. And I can do it in a number of ways. Uh, if the transition is in the microwave range, uh, or microwave or radio frequency range, which is what we listen to when the radio waves come through the air, then I can just have a counter. And I have a very precise clock, and I measure it off, and I can determine that my, the difference in my laser frequencies is the right uh, thing right difference. If the um, transition is in the optical uh, frequency uh, range, so something that we could see with our eyes, red, green, blue, then I would need some reference there. And that reference could be a precise optical uh, uh, clock, um, or you can use 
a set of atoms themselves a, as a separate reference that you can do some kind of measurement on those atoms to make sure the laser is at the right frequency. If you think about the scientific lasers we use, you know, I can go and buy a green laser pointer now for 20 bucks. The lasers we use tend to cost 20,000 bucks. And you may ask, well, why don't I just use those laser pointers? And the key is... Why don't you just use those laser pointers? <laughs> the key is we need the precision, so we have to have those lasers' energy or frequency precise to about a part per billion. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty fine. Let's talk a little bit, at least, about what a laser actually is and how it differs from other sources of light. So, you know, an incandescent light bulb is the easiest thing to see, right? You look carefully, you see a glowing filament. So that's just a hot piece of metal that's glowing because of blackbody radiation. A laser basically consists of a pair of mirrors so that if I have a photon, it can just bounce back and forth between those two mirrors. Now, one of the mirrors is probably only, say, 90% reflective, so it can leak out the end to my laser beam. And then in between the mirrors is going to be what we call a gain medium, which may just be a collection of atoms. It could be a semiconductor material. And those that gain medium is going to spit out photons when the correct photon comes along. So this is a process of stimulated emission. Requires the atoms being in the excited state so they can get stimulated. Makes a lot of sense, right? Um, so you have to put the atoms in the excited state. Different lasers do that in different ways. Our semiconductor diode lasers, we just run an electrical current through the semiconductor. Um, some lasers use other lasers to excite the atoms. Um, so you pump one laser with another laser. Um, if you've ever seen a helium neon laser, it's a gas tube, and there you create a plasma by running current through the gas, and it's like a fluorescent tube, and that's another place where I'm using electrical energy. Uh, the Air Force is working on lasers to shoot down planes, and these are chemical lasers, so they actually use chemical reactions where you mix chemicals together, and that creates molecules in excited states. And one of the reasons that you guys use lasers in the lab is not just because of the precision of the frequency, but because the light is coherent. What, what advantage does that give you in talking to atoms? So I think basically what a laser needs is a bunch of emitters that are in an excited state so that they're ready to admit, emit. Um, and then they have to be arranged in such a way that they all emit together in phase. They work collectively. So you've got, a, a, in the case of a gas laser, a bunch of atoms, and you've excited them in some way and they're all ready to emit light because they've been excited. And then when, when you, for example, arrange them in a cavity, they, d they cooperatively emit their light together in phase, and that's what makes the coherent light come out. So uh, the atom, so the quantum bit that we use, you can think of it maybe roughly as, as if it's a spin, you can think of it as like a little magnetic top, and it can spin around and point in a particular direction. And, and the, the direction it's pointing in is, tells you what its particular state is. And you want to control that really precisely. And the laser 
has a certain frequency uh, and uh, that it oscillates at, and that can be in phase with this spinning top. And you want it to be in phase so you can precisely control it. Another way to put it is Trey's got his son on a swing, and he wants to get his son swinging with a large amplitude. So he wants to push him in phase so there's a natural frequency of the swing, and so he's going to be pushing him every cycle and builds up to a large amplitude swing. If instead he just closed his eyes and randomly pushed whenever he wanted, well, his son would probably get annoyed, but also he wouldn't do a very good job of coherently driving an excitation if it were an atom. See, this is what happens with physicists. They use their children as harmonic oscillators, <laughs> and it, it, it's a dangerous business. The ranges of frequencies that we're talking about here that can be generated by lasers run basically from what to what? Well, there are, I guess, X-ray lasers now, um, which is really pushing the high-frequency, high-energy range, and then that spans all the way from X-rays down to the ultraviolet, through the visible, to the near-infrared. Well, let me ask you one other thing. Atoms obviously come in all different sizes, but even a really fat one is maybe, what, a tenth of a nanometer wide, right, or one angstrom. You guys are talking about bombarding this tiny little atom with things that are hundreds of nanometers long, which is about a thousand times the diameter of an atom. How does that work exactly? Right. That's the interesting thing about atoms is um, they interact with light very strongly. And um, the atom itself is a very tiny object compared to the wavelength of light that you're shining on it. But it interacts so strongly with the laser light, it, it effectively looks like it's about the size of the wavelength. So if I focus down light on the order of one wavelength, even though the atom is so much uh, tinier than that, than that area, it, the um, atom can effectively absorb almost all the light. If you want to know what state an atom is in, you, you have to look at it in some way. And just by looking at it with your eye isn't going to give you the information. So you shine light on it, and you shine the light at, a, at the right frequency so that if the atom is in one state, it will scatter a lot of light and essentially glow at the laser color. And if it's in a different state, it won't scatter a lot of light, and you, it'll look dark. And you can tell the difference between the, the atom lighting up or the atom not lighting up. A single atom can, is so efficient at scattering the laser light that with your... With the human eye, you can actually see a single atom or ion fluorescing and see it glowing. And what's the physical explanation for the difference between the light and the dark states? Basically, their resonant frequency doesn't match up. Uh, it, it depends on how the problem is set up. But uh, basically, so if I sing at exactly the right tone, I can make the right guitar string vibrate with me. And, and then the other guitar strings aren't vibrating. And <laughs> right. so that's the key right. is that. Uh, and what it really comes down to typically in these quantum information experiments is when the atom's in the spin-up state, it's got one natural frequency. When it's in the spin-down state, it has another. So now if I choose my laser to only excite it when it's in the spin-up, uh, if it's in the spin-down, it just sits there. Let's try to differentiate between a laser beam or uh, rays of light and the smallest individual quantum unit of light, which is called the photon. 
when one speaks of laser, you're speaking much more of light in a guitar string kind of way. And the, the role of the photon itself often gets kind of lost and is not quite as visible uh, right. because th that's the key point of a laser. It acts more like what we think classical waves will look like. They're coherent. Um, they have a, a particular wave front. They, they look, they're basically just like ripples going off. Uh, and um, s individual photons within that are, 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 are fairly hard to see. But yet, on the other hand, when we talk about how they interact with atoms, it's ex exceedingly convenient to think of them as photons in that case. So we right. talk about the atom absorbing a photon or emitting a photon. And this is part of the whole wave-particle duality of quantum mechanics that says particles, whether they're light particles like a photon or an atom, depending on the situation, can act like a wave or maybe it acts like a particle. Laser light doesn't come in every possible uh, wavelength of frequency. Does that uh, lack of complete continuity across uh, frequencies and wavelengths, does that have any effect on your research? That's uh, an interesting topic because it has a pretty significant impact on research. If you are interested in working, for example, with a rubidium atom, and the rubidium atom wavelength is about 780 nanometers, it turns out that's awfully close to DVD wavelengths, and there's a billion-dollar industry out there making cheap DVD lasers. So you can buy a reasonable laser, f diode laser, for 50 bucks, put it all together, a couple thousand dollars, you have yourself a laser system if you build it up from scratch. If you're interested in something in the green or the yellow, for example, a terbium is at 556 nanometers, uh, there's nothing out there with a billion-dollar industry behind it to make it really cheap. And you can spend twenty dollars to $100,000 on, uh, on a laser that can do what you want. I've been doing this for the last uh, 20 or more years when I started doing laser cooling and atomic physics. The semiconductor diode laser didn't really exist, so we did everything with dye lasers, which are these horrible things where you actually mix up, you know, looks like dye, food dye or clothing dye. They're, liquids, right? They're liquids, and when you spill it on your clothing, your clothing are dyed. So everyone in the lab had little pink stains on their clothing. Um, and then as t it's, it's this interesting interaction between science and industry because the advent of the CD player generated this huge industry to develop semiconductor lasers. In the labs, we all said, wow, look, there are these cheap semiconductor lasers here. We can use them for this. And for instance, that's how we got working on rubidium atoms because they came from this particular diode laser. And then as time has gone on, you know, various industrial applications then generate new lasers, new science goes into developing new types of lasers, and it kind of feeds back and forth on itself. And so more and more atoms become accessible in a convenient way because more and more applications and lasers show up, and they're kind of filling in those gaps. But the gap, it, it, it can be frustrating as a researcher because the gaps can be fairly narrow, but exactly around where you want to be. And in the old days, before they would perfect the, the, their ability to make these diode lasers in the semiconductor industry, there would be a lot of rejects that would be the wavelength you want. And you could go shopping around looking for rejects that were the right thing. And now they get really good really fast, and they, they 
are making laser diodes to match a certain wavelength, and it happens to just barely not be the wavelength you want, but they don't have any rejects that are good for you. And you, I mean, another example of it is that they went um, immediately from red uh, lasers for DVDs and and laser discs and so forth to blue, Blu-ray, um, and they skipped right over yellow and green. Um, and f- sodium, which is a very reasonable atom to work with um, from a laser cooling point of view, is this beautiful yellow color, uh, and it's expensive and painful to make. You still use dye lasers typically, although now they are doubling lasers to do it. There's a technology out there that we use all the time, which is I can double the frequency of a laser fairly routinely. So the now rather ubiquitous green laser pointer, it's not actually a green laser. It's an infrared laser. And in that little $10 laser pointer, there's a crystal and you send in the infrared light and it basically adds together two infrared photons and spits out a green photon. So a lot of the holes are actually plugged by doubling or even tripling or quadrupling the frequency of existing lasers. But in addition to different frequencies of lasers, there are also different ways in which lasers can function. And we have with us a JQI researcher named Wes Campbell who works with a particular kind of laser called a pulsed laser. Tell us a little bit about that, Wes. Okay, so in a mode-locked laser, the laser is operating with many colors lasing inside simultaneously. And if all of those colors are oscillating in phase with one another, the resulting light emission from the laser typically is nothing coming out of the end of the laser because all of these waves inside the laser are interfering destructively. But every now and then, every single mode inside that laser, all of these different colors will be vibrating at exactly the same direction at the same time and you will get constructive interference and you will get a very bright laser pulse emitted from the laser. So if you think about waves as peaks and troughs, what you're saying is that at some particular instant in time, all the peaks line up for all those different colors, and then I got a lot of light coming out. That's right. And most of the rest of the time, they're just kind of randomly adding up and kind of washing out to nothing. Yeah, and it's quite incredible, actually, that for the vast majority of the time, all of that destructive interference is perfect. You get complete darkness out of this laser. There's absolutely nothing coming out of it. But every now and then, Periodically, you do get that constructive interference, as you mentioned. We have a kind of an audio analog of that 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 might help folks understand this. We have two tuning forks. One is at uh, 440 cycles per second, which for you piano players is middle A on the piano. And another one is just slightly off of that. And what I'm going to do is hit first one and then the other, and you'll be able to listen to their interference both constructive, which is the loud sound, and destructive, which is when the the volume diminishes. Bong, 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 bong. Is it something like that? Yes, absolutely. The difference is that This involves more than just two frequencies. What we're talking about here is thousands of frequencies. So if you had a third tuning fork that was exactly the same difference in pitch from the second tuning fork as the second one was from the first one, 
then you would get to hear sharper beats in some sense, and a fourth and a fifth and so forth. And eventually what you would end up with, if you had thousands of tuning forks, is you would have spaces of time where you hear nothing, and then you would hear some kind of a bright, some kind of a click or something like this, something with a lot of frequency content in it. So my, my tuning forks, if the first one was 440, the next one was 441, 442, et cetera, once a second, because that's the spacing between them, right, I would get a click or a beep or whatever it would sound like. It'd be an interesting physics experiment to try. We'll just have to collect 10 tuning forks and see what happens. But And then the pulses that you get not only come out really fast, but the pulses themselves are quite short, right? That's right. So the pulse duration that we're getting out of these lasers is measured in units of picoseconds. So if a thousandth of a second is a millisecond, and a millionth of a second is a microsecond, and a billionth of a second is a nanosecond, a picosecond is one trillionth of a second. And that is the time scale over which the light is being emitted from the laser. So, so if the age of the universe is 14 billion years, then one 14 billionth of that is one year. Now, the, a picosecond is one one trillionth of a second. So one one trillionth of the age of the universe is one week. So you have these lasers that are putting out these incredibly narrow, short pulses. So what are you doing with them? Well, one of the advantages of using a laser that emits short pulses is that the technology for that makes it easy for us to get high power, high optical power, make a very bright laser at the color that we like. So I, I tend to, in my research, use continuous wave lasers, lasers and uh, you know, our, our typical powers are kind of you know, 100 milliwatts or a watt kind of thing. And that's what your pulse lasers are, too on average, right? That's Roughly. Right. So what that means is since you've got a picosecond pulse coming out and what's the time before the next pulse? Eight nanoseconds. Eight nanoseconds. So you've essentially collected up all that wad of power and shoved it into this little time interval, right? So the instantaneous power is now much, much higher than my continuous laser. But the price you pay is that it's off for most of its time. That's right. And we pay another price, which is the fact that this thing actually contains many colors all at once because it is such a short pulse. We were talking about the mode-locked laser as being a laser that operates at many colors simultaneously. So a single pulse contains all of that information and all of those colors are there. So we've traded off power, instantaneous power, for spectral purity. So in, in the course of interrogating your atoms or ions, uh, what is the advantage to be gained from this short time span? Let's see. That means we can drastically affect the atom in a short period of time. So we want to be able to do things to our atom. We have goals associated with information processing. We can use the atom like a tiny computer. And in order to do this, we want to be able to do it very, very quickly. And so we are able to use the short pulse to do things extremely quickly. But it's also crucial for what we do that this pulse contain all of these colors because we're using the fact that it has multiple colors in order to drive a specific type of operation in our atom, in order to change its state in a specific way that usually requires a couple of different lasers at different frequencies. Here, a single pulse does the whole thing for us all at once. What's the time frame that it takes you to switch the atom state if you're using the continuous wave laser? 
that is typically done on a time scale of microseconds. And so that's a millionth of a second. So this is a pulse from our laser, which will last a time scale of picoseconds, then is about 100,000, maybe a million times faster than that. And so it's a tremendous speed improvement compared to continuous wave lasers. And so if this were used for quantum computing or any kind of computing, you would have a greater, as it were, clock speed. That's right. If you can do your operations a million times faster than you used to be able to do, that means in the same amount of time where it took you to do one operation before, you can now do a million operations. And so people who have computers are very familiar with the idea that the clock speed makes their computer more powerful. If people have a 2.3 gigahertz processor or a 3 gigahertz processor, they know a 3 gigahertz processor is faster. Gigahertz meaning billion cycles per second. One thing we should contrast is there are different kinds of pulse lasers. We've been talking about these special mode-locked lasers that have this property because you've added together these specific set of different colors. We should point out there is the other kind of pulse laser, which is more the sledgehammer. So I just saw a recent news report where the U.S. military can now shoot down incoming missiles with a pulsed laser. That's not a mode-locked laser. That's just one big fat pulse coming out. It's very intense because it's a big laser. But there is something special about these mode-locked lasers, which you really need, right, because you're trying to do precision control of the atom. That's right. The pulses come out of this laser at a very repeatable rate. So when I say it's 8.2 nanoseconds between pulses, that would be 8.2000000. So and it's the regularity of those pulses being emitted that is the characteristic of a mode-locked laser. By having multiple pulses that are very well spaced compared to one another, we can get a lot of the benefits back of having uh, continuous wave lasers using a train of pulses from this pulse laser. If you're now up to picoseconds, I, how much farther can laser technology take us? I've heard that there are things on the horizon that are called attosecond lasers, which would be uh, 10 to the minus 18th seconds. The state of the art these days is pushing into that regime, to be sure. So what we do we don't require pulses that are quite that short. In fact, picosecond lasers have been around for uh, decades now, really. Uh, they, they are not the cutting edge in terms of pulse shortness. When you start getting onto time scales that are measured in attoseconds, this becomes very important for processes that involve things that are moving very, very quickly, like electrons moving around atoms. So now, 50 years after the invention of the first laser, uh, this device has become a pretty much indispensable tool of quantum information science. And could you really work without it these days? There's no question that the majority of atomic physics, much of condensed matter physics, and I would say almost all quantum information processing that's being done experimentally uh, uses lasers in an integral way. Yeah, there's been quite the rebirth. If we just think about atomic physics, of which a lot of quantum information science has grown out of our techniques from atomic physics. You know, atomic physics is trying to understand the properties of atoms and how atoms interact with light. And in the 60s, before the laser really became blossomed, it was sort of seen as 
you know, a backwater field almost that we'd figured out, you know, we'd done the classic spectroscopy in the 10s and 20s and 30s, and we understood atomic structure and everything. And if you're going to do atomic physics, well, okay, but it's, it's not that exciting anymore. And the laser completely changed all of that. Um, it just opened up an enormous number of possibilities of doing measurements and new ideas and the whole idea of quantum information, laser cooling, atomic clocks based on laser-cooled atoms. This all grew out of the existence of the laser and all these different flavors and varieties that have come along since then, let alone all the technological implications from CD players to barcode scanners to, you know, laser pointers and Pink Floyd shows, you know. And there's been an, an interesting shift, I think, also in the perspective that is taken when we look at how lasers and atomic physics have interacted with one another. You might say that the idea of the laser came from atomic physics. When you talk about lasing media, uh, often you're talking about atoms, you're talking about single emitters, things of this nature. Then lasers were used to study the spectra of atoms, uh, which also is kind of a, an older type of an idea. Uh, people still do this, and there's a lot of precision work that's being done, but this was kind of an older idea. But really the change was when people started using lasers to control the atoms. And that is the rebirth that we've seen in the past 20 years, is the tremendous amount of control over both the internal state of these atoms and their movement. We can hold them in one place in the lab now using nothing but lasers. And that has enabled us to uh, observe all kinds of wonderful phenomena with these atoms. We're studying more about the atoms than just their spectra now. We're really treating them as fully quantum particles interacting with one another. And that has enabled us to, to give birth, you know, to, to see the birth of this field of, of quantum information science. If you'd like to learn more about the fast-moving world of quantum information science, take a look at our website at jqi.umd.edu. There's a lot of multimedia stuff and news there uh, to keep you up to date on what's going on. And while you're there, you might take a look at the Physics Frontier Center, supported by the National Science Foundation. The address for that site is pfc.umd.edu. So for Steve, Carl, and the rest of the JQI fellows, thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.